All right, before we get into the message this morning, I want to draw your attention to my left and your right. There's a pink flower there indicating that we have a new uh, baby born into the church family. Uh, Ivy Joanne Hurlbutt was born on May 16th to Joe and Morgan Hurlbutt. Do I see them here this morning? I do not, but that's okay. Let's praise God and welcome little Ivy into our church family. Awesome. All right, it's always fun to welcome new kids into our church. Well, this morning we're going to pick up in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to chapter 5 of Acts, Acts 5. Um, We are going to begin in verse 12. We're going to end in verse 42. And if you do the math, that's 30 verses. If you pause just for a moment, for those of you who are here and it's your first time or you're visiting, you'll say, wow, that's impressive, 30 verses. Uh, Welcome, by the way. Those of you who are here, you think 30 verses in 30 minutes, Trinity, there's no way he can do it. (laughs) Yes, I can. And yes, we will. Besides, it's a holiday weekend, so we have all of Monday to get through too. So don't worry, we got time. All right, well, pray with me before we get into this message. Father God, thank you for your word, the encouragement, the instruction, the life that we can receive through it. Father, as we look at the apostles' lives and how they advanced the gospel in light of opposition. Help us to recognize in our own life how you want us to stand boldly in proclaiming the good news to others. How you want us to recognize that suffering to advance the gospel is part of the Christian life. And how you want us to be faithful and committed to love and to care for people in need. Father, I pray that through your your word this morning and the instruction of it, that your Holy Spirit will encourage us and teach us to live the life, God, that you have for us as a church and for each one of us to live individually as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Acts chapter 5 is actually a, a narrative chapter in the story or the history of the early church. And so that's why I want to cover all these verses together, because it really is necessary that we look at them together. And what we discover within the narrative of chapter 5 of Acts is that there are patterns that the early church had by way of uh, bringing the good news of Jesus to the world that we uh, can pay attention to and should put into practice ourselves. By way of patterns of bringing the good news, we're going to talk about evangelism today. Evangelism happens to be one of the purposes that God designed for the church. After all, if we don't go into the world and tell people the good news about Jesus, how will the church grow? God wants his church to grow through you and through me who are followers of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, I want to remind you of the words. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is Acts, or Luke's great commission. It's the summary of all of book of Acts, and it gives us purpose and direction for our lives as Christians. 
that once we receive the goodness of God through Jesus Christ and we, we have salvation in him, he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us and equip us, and then he sends us into the world to be a witness to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us and what he can do in us and through us. God wants us to be good news people. You know, when I was a, a, a younger Christian, uh, I didn't have any problem telling people about Jesus. I really didn't. I did it eagerly. I did it passionately. I probably did it too often offensively. Ever been there? But one of the things that I often struggled with when telling people about Jesus was that I felt like it was my job to convince them to accept and live for Jesus. Now, convinced by way of teaching them is one thing. Convinced by way of not leaving them alone until they say yes to Jesus is another. But when I would share Jesus with people, the reason I lingered longer than maybe I needed to was because I felt like it was my responsibility not only to tell them, but to change them. Then I had some really wise Christian people in my life who confronted me and said, Trent, it's not your job to change anybody. That's God's job. All God wants you to do is be faithful and obedient to telling people about Jesus, to showing them Jesus, to living for Jesus, to being the hands and feet for Jesus. You be faithful and obedient to proclaiming the good news, and God will be faithful to changing people's lives. I want you to know how freeing that was. It changed my whole perspective on how I share Jesus with others. It freed me tremendously of the weight that I felt responsible to bring life change to people. After all, I knew that God changed my life dramatically. And if he would do this for me, I knew he could do it for you. And I wanted you to experience what I did. But when we talk about evangelism, there's all kinds of analogies that we oftentimes give in the church. And I'm sure you're familiar with some of them. You know, like this one, um, God says, or Jesus said, you know, that we are to be fishers of men, right? And so here's the analogy for evangelism. You catch them and God will clean them. You've heard that one, right? See, we're to catch them and God will clean them. And what that actually says is that our job is to proclaim and, and woo people, but God's job is not only woo people, but he changes people. That's good. Or how about this one as we consider evangelism, that, that as, we, as we bring people to Jesus, we're one link in the chain. What that simply means is between the point of somebody hearing about Jesus and receiving Jesus as Savior, there's, think of a chain and every link there's a person who has a, a place or an investment in, in showing and sharing the love of Christ with this person. I guess sometimes you're the first link that gets to tell somebody about Jesus the first time, and sometimes you're the last link that gets to encourage them and witness them accept the good news of Jesus and salvation that he brings. But sometimes we're the links in between, and that can be either encouraging or discouraging depending on what link you want to be. But the bottom line is, is all of us together need to work together to help bring people of this world who don't know Jesus into a place of receiving him as Lord and Savior. None of that is our ability or our responsibility to change the heart of a person. That's God's. But our responsibility and our ability by the power of the Spirit that's in us is to go and tell and show people the goodness of God and tell them the goodness about the message of Jesus Christ.
You see, I believe that one of the things that God is doing uh, in this chapter, chapter 5, is establishing and teaching the early church that God will allow nothing to stand in the way of the advancement of the gospel and the expansion of his church. And we're going to see how, how, how this plays out. Because at the beginning of chapter 5, we read about Ananias and Sapphira, don't we? We spent a little bit of time here last week. What we realized before Ananias and Sapphira's story was simply that Satan went to work through persecuting the church from the outside. That the gospel was being boldly proclaimed and thousands of people were responding to Jesus and Satan was not happy with that. So he, he took the governing authorities, the Sanhedrin and he, uh, of the Jewish religion, and he arrested Peter and John. He put them in jail and he tried to stop the message of Jesus from going out. Well, that didn't work. So now he's going to go, Satan's going to go to work on the inside of the church. And he chose Ananias and Sapphira to be the ones that he's going to attempt it. And what we realized was that Ananias and Sapphira, they both lied to the Holy Spirit. They both lied to God. And as a result, God judged them for their lie immediately, and they died. First Ananias, and then Sapphira. And what I believe that God was doing right there was he was telling the early church that holiness matters. I will preserve the witness and testimony of my church. And I think you need to take sin seriously because I take sin seriously. We also learn that the integrity, our personal integrity matters as it relates to the witness of the gospel in the world through our lives. But here, as we consider the end of uh, Ananias and Sapphira's story in verse 11 of chapter 5, we read these words, great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. And you know what we concluded? That was a good response. It should have. A sense of awe and reverence for God. A sense of needing to be holy as God is holy. We talked about holiness last week, and we defined holiness as the conformity to the image and the character, the likeness of God. That we are to be holy because God is holy, and that's the life he's called us to. That we are to live without sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who will forgive us of our sin, and then he calls us to repentance and, and to live a holy life, a life of conforming to the image and likeness of God. You know, it's holiness that validates the message of the gospel. If we choose to live sinful lives as Christians, the message of the gospel becomes invalidated in our life. This morning, as we pick up in verse 12, the first thing we're going to realize is that the ministry of the gospel meets our greatest need. The ministry of the gospel meets our greatest need. Verse 12, the apostles were performing many miracles and signs and wonders among the people. All the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade, but no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord as crowds of both men and women. Now, this is a couple things that are interesting here. One, we see that the, the, the early church continued to meet at the temple courts and in Solomon's colonnade. We also recognize that even though the apostles were performing all these miracle signs and wonders, 
that they were doing this to validate the message that they were giving, that Jesus Christ brings eternal life to your life. And we're proving that by the miracle signs and wonders that we're doing, not by our power, but by the power of God that is at work in us. I want to pause there for a minute, take a time out and remind you that the same power that was at work in the apostles' lives in the early church is the same power that's at work in your life as a Christian. That power is the presence of Jesus himself. We know him to be the Holy Spirit. This was the first time that it was mentioned, at least in Acts, that both men and women were coming to faith by large numbers. We know that women were coming to faith anyway, but this is the first time it's mentioned. As a result, verse 15 of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as they went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing the sick uh, and those possessed by evil spirits as they were all healed. What's happening here? God is beginning to advance the gospel from Jerusalem to places outside of Jerusalem. Not as though the gospel's going out yet from Jerusalem, but people from outside of Jerusalem are now starting to come into Jerusalem. The message of the gospel is changing people's lives there, and there's no doubt that they're going back and telling their friends about the life change that Jesus is bringing to their life. If we consider the fact that the ministry of the gospel meets our greatest need, we also have to understand, based on what we're seeing here, is that the ministry of the gospel was meeting people where they were at. They were healing them of diseases and sickness. They were healing them of, I'm sure, mental health issues. They were being healed of being possessed by evil spirits. The ministry of the early church was one of compassion for the needy. And it should also be the ministry that we have as a local church today to have compassion for those in need and meet them where they're at, encourage them, pray for them and help them meet the many needs that they have. But the one and most important need that we can never, ever, ever lose sight of is their greatest need, a spiritual need, their need for the forgiveness of sin that can only come through the person of Jesus Christ. If all we do is help people through social services and social justice and never tell them about Jesus, we're not doing them any justice or giving them much help at all. We certainly are not giving them an eternal help. We're not helping them meet the greatest need that they have, the need for Jesus. So as we go into the world and have compassion on others, as we meet with people where they're at and as we help them, as we provide social justice and do all the things that we're called to do, make sure that with everything you have, you don't lose sight of telling people about their greatest need, their need for Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is truly for everyone. It's not just limited to some people. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus said that the gospel is for the poor in spirit. Those who recognize I can't come to God on my own terms, but the only way that I can receive the forgiveness of sin and come to God is through the person who can make that possible, and that's Jesus himself. If you think you can get to heaven on your own, you're full of pride. If you know that you need Jesus, then you've come to realize you are poor in spirit. It's great 
to have all of our needs met, but it's even greater to have the one need we need met, the need to be forgiven. How do you turn to God in a time of need? Do you use God as a benevolent factor in your life? Or seemingly the only time you turn to him is when you have a need? Or do you see God truly as your Lord and your Savior? And you live in that posture and place of wanting to be obedient and submissive to him. That when you do have a need, you cry out to him and you know with confidence that he will meet you where you're at and that he will do for you what you need. As we transition into verse 17, we realize here that the ministry of the gospel will face opposition in this world. We cannot go into the world and tell people about Jesus without facing opposition. It will happen. It comes with the message. It comes with the territory. What happens here is that the high priest and his officials who were Sadducees were filled with jealousy. The reason that the the, the Sanhedrin gets back involved was because the miracle signs and wonders that the apostles were doing now, making a big statement in the world, winning people to Jesus, was making a mess of the Jewish religion. The Sanhedrin was losing their power. They were losing their, their funding. They were losing all kinds of things, and they were threatened. And rather than trying to persuade people through their message, they did what we most naturally do. They turned to violence. Think of your own life. When you can't get your message across, what's the next step? Is it escalation in your voice? Is it pounding your fist on the table? Is it stomping your feet? Is it yelling and throwing tantrums? Well, maybe when you were a little kid, right? But that still happens to us today at times, doesn't it? The high priests were jealous. The officials were jealous. The Sanhedrin was jealous. The Sadducees were jealous. They were all jealous. So what they did was they arrested the apostles and they put them in public jail. They did this to shame them and to tell the community around them that, listen, they've done something wrong that we don't want you to do. And if you do what they do, then you're going to be where they are. You're going to be in jail. What did they do wrong? They were telling people about Jesus. That's the only thing they were doing wrong. Verse 19, but an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people the message of life. This is, this is amazing. So number one, the Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, and Deuteronomy. They did not believe in the resurrection, and therefore Jesus was somebody they weren't going to believe in. And they didn't believe in angels. Now tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. So you don't believe in angels. You put those guards to protect those apostles in jail, like they're going to stay there all night, the public jail for everybody to see. I'm going to send an angel I'm going to have them released. I'm going to send them back to the temple courts. And then I'm going to tell them what to do and just like stay there and continue to talk about Jesus. They're befuddled by this. They don't know how in the world these apostles got out of there. So when daybreak comes, they go to get the apostles. Verse 21, they were going to have them tried before trial. But when they arrived, they realized that they weren't there. 
Verse 24, when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering, where would this end? Then someone arrived with the startling news. The men you put in jail, they're standing in the temple telling the people about Jesus. This life, amazing. You know, if they were criminals, what would have they likely done? Been released from jail, and then God would have said, run, run, run as fast as you can. But he didn't. He released him and said, now go back to where you were arrested and just tell people about Jesus. And so they did. The captain with his temple guards, as they arrested him, they brought them back to face the Sanhedrin, but they arrested them without violence because they knew that if they took them away violently, there would be an uproar and they would likely be stoned not the apostles, the soldiers. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles, as they met with uh, the Sanhedrin, they were confronted and they said, didn't we tell you not to talk about Jesus anymore? To which they replied, we must obey God rather than human authority. This is the second time they were told that. The first time they said that, they indicted the Sanhedrin. The second time they say that, they're now indicting the Sanhedrin. Listen to this. They flipped the script. They were on trial, but they turned the trial against the Sanhedrin. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so that the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are all witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. Do you see what's happening here? The enemies of the apostle, the enemies of the church, are now the ones who are on trial before God, are now the ones that the apostles have for the second time an opportunity to tell their enemy about Jesus. Let me ask you this question. How do you see the enemy in your life? Do you see the enemies in your life as somebody who God loves? As somebody who God is pursuing? As somebody who needs the gospel? Do you see the enemies in your life as somebody who God not only loves, but who God has called you to love? Or do you see the enemies as your, in your life as somebody you want to run away from? Somebody you want hardship to fall on? The enemies in your life or somebody you want to take revenge on? How encouraging to see these apostles stand before their enemies who keep trying to persecute them and put them in jail and silence them only to turn and to love them because what they saw was that even though they were their enemies, God was giving them an opportunity. How do you see your enemy? Is your enemy somebody you want to destroy? Or is your enemy somebody that God is giving you an opportunity to love? Sometimes the hardest people 
to share the good news about Jesus with our friends and family, aren't they? Because they ridicule us. They put us down. They tell us things like that, Jesus, he's just a crutch in your life. I don't need him. I don't need him. Work is a great place to not only model the Christian life, but a great place to encourage others to know Jesus. Yet it's in the workplace that we find ourselves often so timid, don't we? We're the brunt of the joke. We're made fun of because we don't use the language with them. We're not given the promotion because we're seen differently. Yet it's in the workplace that God gives us opportunity not to see people as our enemy, but as people who we are to love, who we are to serve, who are we to have, who we are to have compassion for. See, we should not stop loving people, especially where they're at. Remember, it's not our job to change anybody. That's God's job. But one of the greatest responsibilities we have as Christians is to meet people where they're at and love them in that space. And with gentleness and respect, keep helping them move towards Jesus. Move towards Jesus. We talked about a biblical position on human sexuality. With conviction, I know what the Bible says. With compassion, my goal is to help you know what the Bible says, but move you towards Jesus. Move you towards Jesus. Give you space in life so that you can move towards Jesus. Are you loving people towards Jesus? Loving people towards Jesus comes with conflict. It comes with suffering Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must count the cost. If you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross daily. You must die to yourself. Following Jesus is not a life for the weak and the weary. It's for those who will depend and rely on the power of God who lives in them, brings life to them, and is at work through them. In Philippians chapter one, the Apostle Paul is writing actually about suffering and the joy that it can bring to our lives as Christians. He writes in verse 27, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with uh, one spirit and one, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. Living for Jesus, loving Jesus, and sharing Jesus comes with struggle. It's hard work. 
I'm going to give you a nugget that will hopefully change your perspective on this. Always choose relationships over results. Relationships over results. When I was a young Christian, I went for the results. I wanted to win as many people as I could to Christ. I still want to win as many people as I can to Christ, but I do it differently. I value the relationship I have with God and I value the relationship I have with others. And when that becomes the focal point of my life, loving God and loving others rightly, then I can leave the results up to God and so can you. Don't focus on the results. Focus on the relationships. Loving others with compassion loving them to Jesus. And be encouraged by this. Nothing will hinder the advancement of the gospel. God's gospel will go forth into the world. In verse 33, as the Sanhedrin was put on trial, they didn't like what they heard. And when they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. All the apostles were going to get killed. But one man in the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, stood up, Gamaliel. He was known as the rabbon, master teacher, only one that was assigned that title. Everyone else, rabbi, was teacher. He was known as the most educated and wise person on the council, and this was his council. Listen, there's been other people who said they were Messiah, and they had followers, and they died, and then everything just went away. Uh, you know what? If this is of God, it will go forward. If it's not of God, people will just go away. Now, on one hand, that seems wise, right? On the other hand, it's really not because the person who knew the Old Testament scriptures more than anybody missed the point that Jesus was the Messiah. Not only that, he missed the point that by God's power, the gospel will go forward. So you are fighting against God. Which leads us to this final part, because after everything was said and done, the Sanhedrin accepted this advice from Gamaliel, verse 40, they called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They were flogged, they were beaten and persecuted, they were whipped, they were scarred for life. One slash to the front for every two to the back. For the apostles, they had spent three years with Jesus, watching him get beat, persecuted, crucified, and all these things. And when it was their time to stand up for him, like they said they would every single time, they did what? They ran away. What about you? When given opportunity to stand up for Jesus, what do you do? Do you cower and move back and run away? Or do you stand in that place of suffering and proclaim boldly the name of Jesus? Because for the first time, they were able to be beaten for Jesus' name and they didn't run away. They stood in the place and they took on the beating. And you know what they found it to be? A joyous occasion. Really? No, for real. See, the ministry of the gospel strengthens the Christian's resolve to serve God. We're going to end with this idea. Hang with me. We're going to wrap it up right now. Verse 41 The apostles left the high council after being beaten, by the way, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. 
Praise God, we finally stood the ground. We are considered worthy to suffer for Christ. They found joy, great joy in that. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. They were beaten and told what? Stop talking about Jesus. They were beaten and left how? Rejoicing. Continuing to tell people about Jesus. You see, the blessed life, it's not all about health, wealth, and prosperity. The blessed life will bring suffering and hardship. In Matthew chapter 5, let me remind you of Jesus' words when he said this, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for great is your reward that awaits you in heaven. Remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Not in our prosperity, but in our suffering for Jesus. Do we find great strength, courage, and joy in sharing Jesus with others? And do we also find ourselves not alone? For if and when you suffer for Jesus, you're in good company. Remember that. And when they were told, when we were told that they continued to teach and preach about Jesus, these were two things I want to remind you of as they went into the world. They clung to the word of God. It was foundational to their life. And everything they taught had to do with what the Word of God tells us, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And when they preached, it's really a message of proclamation of the good news of what Jesus did for me and what he can do for you. And in doing so, they left the results up to God. So if you find yourself suffering as a Christian, remember you're in good company, that we are to be compassionate towards the needy, bold in our witness for Jesus, and joyful in our suffering for Christ. And if we can do that, we will advance the gospel, and it will go forth unhindered. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge, the encouragement, the instruction, the hope that it brings to our lives as Christians. God, help us to be steadfast and resolved in the life of loving you and sharing the good news about you. Help us to meet people where they're at, to love people well, to be bold in sharing you, Jesus, and to leaving the results up to you, that your kingdom may grow through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.